Chapter 18 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 18 After his release from Reading Jail, having refused the offer of certain American journalists to pay him a large sum for an account of his life in prison, with the remark he could not understand that such offers should be made to a gentleman, he immediately crossed over to France. His deference to English society was such that he felt that, having offended his country, he must consign himself to a perpetual exile from England. For the rest, he had reason to expect sympathy and welcome in France, where his case at the time of his downfall had been widely discussed with great commiseration. It was held that the man had been very harshly dealt with. Several prominent men had written about him. Henri de Renier and Paul Adam, who already at that time held high positions in French literature, in which today they rank as masters, had published articles describing his great good qualities and paying respectful homage to the convict in Wandsworth Jail. Henri Bauer, an influential critic, had published an account of Wilde's condemnation and the treatment that was being dealt out to him, which thrilled civilised France with horror. A house had been taken for him at a village called Berneval, on the south coast to the northeast of Dieppe. He had assumed the name of Sebastian Melmoth, and his immediate purpose was to live here in retirement, giving himself up to work. Those amongst his friends who had means had subscribed a sum which was handed to him on his release, and there was also paid over to him the balance of a gift of £1,000, which had been applied to his purposes during his confinement. There is no worse school for husbandry than a place where money has no use. The truth of this is shown by the unvarying recklessness of sailors. Prisoners display on their release an extravagance as imprudent. The ship, as the jail, obliterates all notions of the value of money. In Oscar Wilde's case, contributory causes were his native generosity and the new feeling of charity which filled his softened heart. His resources melted away in his hands. He sent presents of money to many of his late fellow prisoners. He entertained at Dieppe a band of Montmartre poets, and at Berneval, on the occasion of the Queen's Jubilee, the whole village school of children. He rescued the poet Ernest Dowson from a position of great embarrassment at the inn at Arc. He spent money with the recklessness of sailors on shore and prisoners free of jail. No doubt it pleased him, could not help but please him, having been humiliated so long, to enjoy the power which money gives in the spending of it. He was only a man, after all, with human weaknesses. That he did feel the humiliation is shown in another way. There are in existence some letters which he wrote to the warder who had befriended him. In one of these he indulges in the delicious pleasure of rebuking in his turn one of the class under whose domination and rebuke he had lived for so many months. The man had written to him as Oscar Wilde, care of Sebastian Melmoth, and this is how Oscar Wilde reproves him. 
I must begin by scolding you thoroughly for a piece of carelessness on your part. I told you I had changed my name and wrote out most carefully for you my new name and address. In spite of this, you write to me on the envelope as Oscar Wilde Esquire, care of Sebastian Melmoth. Now this was silly of you. I changed my name so as not to be bothered, and then you go and write to me as Oscar Wilde. You must be careful and thoughtful about things. Just as much trouble is caused by carelessness as by crime, my friend. Lower down, he tells the man, who was anxious to leave the prison service, that he has recommended him for a post, and adds, I have spoken highly of your character and intellect. Let me beg of you to deserve all I have said of you. You have, I think, a good chance of a good place, so you must be as sound and straightforward and as good a fellow as possible. He hankered after respectability. In inviting friends to visit him at Berneval, he used to ask those who were married to bring their wives with them, as though he felt that the presence of ladies under his roof would vouch for its respectability in his own eyes. He may have fancied that prison had attainted him. It would have been difficult for him to avoid such a feeling. In his case, there was not a single thing he ever said, nor a single thing he ever did, not a glance, not a flash of expression, not the shadow of a thought that could have betrayed to the keenest observer, ignorant of the fact, that this man had spent two years as a common prisoner in a common jail. Degradation had failed to degrade him. His intimates noticed only how vastly improved he was in physique, in nerve and muscle, in energy and courage. How his whole being seemed rejuvenated, his whole character sweetened. They attributed it to the prison regime, for in those days they did not know how, in the lonely meditation of his cell, he had found the true secret of life. He showed himself to those who had the privilege of seeing him during the weeks which he spent in Berneval, a gentleman, a hero, and a Christian. It is the privilege and the distinction of those who take Christ as their model in life, who follow him in humility, in resignation and kindness, to receive at the hands of men treatment no other than that which was accorded to him also. One cannot doubt that a man so keen of intelligence as Oscar Wilde well foresaw, when he came to that determination which he so eloquently sets forth in De Profundis, what the world would reserve for one who should oppose to cruelty, mansuetude, to insult, forbearance, to hatred, forgiveness, and to contempt the sublime pity which charity inspires. He was admirably instructed in the ways of society. He was essentially a man of the world. He could give, in the old days, the most useful advice on how best to act in the worldly sense. A friend recalls how he once said of suicide that it was wrong, because it was the highest compliment that an individual could pay to society. Of course, he knew, when he left prison in the state of mind into which he had schooled himself, exactly what he had to expect from the world. He had accepted in advance all the outrages that were to be heaped upon him. 
deliberately he had entered upon a martyrdom for which the world was to refuse him any crown with his great powers and the renewed vigour of his body he could have dominated the world to effect that as we now see if we direct our eyes towards germany he had but to let himself live but christianity possessed him he had laid aside all combativeness and he allowed himself to die his noble purpose he maintained during those first months with a courage which surprised his friends only on very rare occasions did a flash of regret for the things that he had lost disclose some streak of bitterness in his heart there were very rare moments when he spoke with irritation of which it was but too easy for his friends to trace the cause from the very first he had the great mortification to find that under the new circumstances of his life work would be difficult to him that is to say he recognised from the first that as he could no longer write under his name he would be unable to produce anything worthy of himself he was one of those artists who write for fame for whom the money consideration is nothing he could not constrain himself to hack work anonymity's black cloak enshrouded his brain he needed applause he thirsted after personal triumph those were essential factors in his artistic temperament so though he never spoke more brilliantly than during the last years of his life because there the reward was immediate in the applause of the marvelling listeners he wrote nothing all stimulus being lacking we have in a letter which he addressed to a working man in reading after his letter the case of warder martin had appeared in the daily chronicle twenty eighth may eighteen ninety seven the pathetic proof of this natural hunger for applause which gives to the great starvation of literary artists its keenest pang what does reading say to it all he asks have you seen any of the warders i suppose not then he passes on to other things but presently comes back to the subject of his famishing curiosity have you heard anything said about me with reference to my letter anything nice in the many pathetic letters from his pen which are in existence one will search in vain for a passage more pathetic than this and we are to remember that the man who was so anxious to hear that people were talking about him as a literary artist had only a few days previously refused with indignation to lend himself to the wide publicity offered by american correspondents it was not notoriety after which he hankered it was recognition of his literary powers the case of warder martin which has frequently been reprinted since his death was a plea for the better treatment of children in prison in particular and in general for the more humane application of the right of punishment it is a noble plea written in noble language and the best documentary evidence that the most exacting can demand of the complete mental recovery and wonderful psychological transformation of its author let any man read first the importance of being earnest which was the last thing he wrote before going into prison and next this letter in the chronicle and then say if he dare 
that Oscar Wilde's announcement in De Profundis that meditation had made a new and different man of him was law and deception. He returned to the subject of prison treatment in a letter entitled Don't Read This If You Want To Be Happy Today, which appeared in the Chronicle on 24th March 1898. These two letters, and his Ballad of Reading Jail, of which the light motif is no different, are all that he wrote after his release from prison. He was keenly interested in this subject of prison reform, Amongst the books which were found in his room in the hotel where he died were several in which this subject is treated. He had John Howard's book on prisons and a number of magazines containing articles on prison life. The Ballad of Reading Jail has been described by certain authorities as the finest ballad in the English language. In July 1904, there appeared in the 19th century, in an article by Lady Curry entitled Enfant Trouvé of Literature, a critical notice of this poem. The name of the review in which this appeared is significant when we remember what Oscar Wilde had said in one of his prison conversations about the way in which his name would be regarded in that quarter. Lady Curry writes of the terrible ballad of Reading Jail with its splendours and inequalities, its mixture of poetic force, crude realism, and undeniable pathos. The writer adds lower down, All is grim, concentrated tragedy from cover to cover. A friend of mine, she continues, who looked upon himself as a judge in such matters, told me that he would have placed certain passages in this poem, by reason of their terrible tragic intensity, upon a level with some of the descriptions in Dante's Inferno, were it not that the Ballad of Reading Jail was so much more infinitely human. In the preface to the translation of André Gide's mischievous memoir of Oscar Wilde is quoted the following extract from a review in one of the leading London papers. Quote, the whole is awful as the pages of Sophocles, that he has rendered with his fine art so much of the essence of his life and the life of others in that inferno to the sensitive is a memorable thing for the social scientist, but a much more memorable thing for literature. This is a simple, a poignant, a great ballad, one of the greatest in the English language. Unquote. It is very certain that there is in poetic description Nothing in the world's literature more powerful, more overwhelming, than the account Oscar Wilde gives of the sleepless night which he spent on the eve of the execution, those verses ending with the lines, At last I saw the shadowed bars like a lattice wrought in lead, move right across the whitewashed cell that faced my three-plank bed, and I knew that somewhere in the world God's awful dawn was red. The very nature of a ballad demands a certain naivety of expression, a certain laxity in the rhymes. It is, however, a curious thing that it is a makeshift rhyme which is used in the one verse that, while it appeals most strongly to those who are morbid-minded, inspires some of the poet's friends with the feeling that it shows that, in spite of his splendid renovation, the obliquity of vision which was ever one of his great defects, had not altogether been overcome. These are the lines referred to. 
yet each man kills the thing he loves by each let this be heard some do it with a bitter look some with a flattering word the coward does it with a kiss the brave man with a sword the thing is not true if it were true it is badly expressed and what is intended for antithesis degenerates on examination into anticlimax yet many find these lines the finest in a ballad which is filled with beauties was this the poor man's final indulgence in his elfin joy in astounding fools or was he in earnest the ballad was published early in eighteen ninety eight oscar wilde had expended over it an immense amount of labour it had been revised and corrected with a precise regard of even the slightest detail of which we get some conception from the many letters which he wrote to his publisher mr leonard smithers while the book was passing through the press almost each word in the poem was made the subject of long consideration of discussion he advises on changes in the punctuation the rudiments had caught him up at last these same letters give evidence of the very mournful condition to which he had at last come they are full on the one hand of descriptions of his poverty and needs on the other of recriminations against his friends in one letter we read my present position is so awful that i began to-day a modern social comedy and would in consequence have had an excellent appetite for dinner had there been any dinner elsewhere he threatens suicide i shall take steps he says he was then living in naples the circumstances under which he had been obliged to leave berneval and to return to the least desirable companionship that the world of men offered to his choice are summed up in the following sentence by the author of twenty years in paris quote, the time came however when being without money repulsed abandoned desolate he could no longer resist entreaties which offered to him companionship in the place of utter loneliness friendship in the place of hostility homage in the place of insult and in the place of impending destitution a luxurious and elegant hospitality Unquote. measures were however taken at once by third parties to break up this association and all supplies being refused oscar wilde's condition in naples became the hazardous existence which he describes in his letters to smithers his irritation at the collapse of his resolutions at their overthrow by the very force of things was so great that he turned upon all men he wrote abusive letters to his friends not even sparing the noblest of them robert ross the subject of the glowing eulogy which one finds in de profundis those words are letters patent of immortality but simple justice not lordly generosity directed that splendid tribute this robert ross's conduct towards oscar wilde was and is the most beautiful thing that the history of noble friendships records that he gave him everything that he had may be nothing it may be nothing that he bore obloquy and endured suffering for his sake that he visited him constantly in prison that he fought and worked unceasingly to safeguard his friend's interest 
keeping a level and commercial head in the midst of the unceasing onslaughts of the harpies who kept swooping down upon Oscar Wilde's prostrate body, that he watched over him like a tender brother during those final months in Paris, that he was with him in his last illness, tending him with the gentleness of a sister of charity, that it was he who brought God at last into the gloomy room in the Hotel d'Alsace, and so obtained that the man who was accursed of men went out of this world with the kiss of pardon on his forehead, with a body sanctified and anointed, under the shadow of the cross, that he ordained his honourable obsequies, and was one of the very rare mourners who followed him to the grave. All these things, from the nature of the man, may be nothing, but what is unusual and splendid, a disillusion to the pessimists, a delight to those who, quand même, would think well of humanity, is that, though five years have now passed since Oscar Wilde died, he pursues quietly the level way of his noble friendship. He is one of the very rare people with whom the dead do not die quick. He goes on being good to Oscar Wilde. He devotes his means to the payment of his friend's creditors. He jealously fosters his friend's literary reputation. He watches over his grave at Bagneux, looking forward to the day when he shall be able, of his own means, to secure a permanent and worthier resting place for his ashes. Such constancy after death is not a virtue of which humanity has warranted the expectation. Devotion dies by slow degrees when the loved one is no longer anything but a memory, a name. Evil breeds evil, but here also good was bred, and in this mournful history, this friendship is a beautiful and pleasant thing. Oscar Wilde lived for three and a half years after his release from prison. After he had left Italy, he returned to Paris. Here, for some time, he resided in a hotel in the Rue Marsolier. He was forced to leave this house because he could not pay his bill. He was literally turned out into the streets. From this position, he was rescued by the landlord of a small hotel in the Rue de Beauart, Monsieur Duporier, who had known him in his prosperous days. Duporier offered him rooms in his house and went to the hotel in the Rue Marsolier and discharged the bill, recovering Wilde's property. From that time on, Wilde resided at number 13 Rue de Beauart, which is within five minutes' walk of the Hôtel Voltaire of his imperial days. He had no superstitious dread of the number of the house, which was to be his final dwelling place, though, like all great minds, he entertained many other superstitions. One can understand this. The great mind recognises what the fool does not, that there are powers in the universe of which he has no comprehension, although he discerns their manifestations. Oscar Wilde was superstitious. For instance, he considered it very unlucky to drive in a carriage which was drawn by a white horse. Of the Hôtel d'Alsace, it would not be fair to say that it was squalid. It is related that Monsieur Duporier remarked, after Wilde's death, that it was very unfair for the newspaper writers to speak of his house as a hotel of the tenth order, when the fact was that it was une maison de cinquième catégorie. 
It was the kind of house where regular lodgers are few and where the profits of the undertaking are derived mainly from stray visitors. At the back of the house was a small yard or garden where Oscar often used to sit of afternoons, reading books and sipping absinthe. It has been stated that his life in Paris during this period was one of shameful relapse. Calumny is still at work with his memory. The fact should be put on record that he was at all times under the close supervision of the police. An influential friend of his once asked Henri Bauer to use his interest with the Minister of Fine Arts on Oscar Wilde's behalf. Henri Bauer afterwards reported that the minister had said that he would do nothing for a man who frequented such company as Oscar Wilde was in the habit of frequenting, that the police were carefully watching him, and that on the least provocation he would be arrested. Now, as he was never interfered with to the time of his death, it seems very clear that he did nothing that warranted such interference, and that calumny has discovered what the spies of the Rue de Jerusalem failed to observe. One wonders who the associates were to whom the police had referred in their report to the minister. The people with whom he used to be seen were reputable enough, as the large tolerance of Paris goes. The poor man could not choose his associates, and as he loved to talk, he was sometimes glad in his loneliness of any audience. He appears, at least during the last year of his life, to have been provided with means. His incurable generosity, no doubt, accounts for the fact that, though his monthly bill at Du Poirier's hotel was never a large one, he died owing the friendly little man close upon £100, and that there were many other debts in Paris. Du Poirier's bill, and some of the other accounts have since been paid. We need not ask by what devoted friend. Of the awful tragedy of his last months, Ernest Lajeunesse gives a striking account in his article in the Revue Blanche. Here is a short passage describing his condition towards the end. Quote, he has been into the country and to Italy. He longs for Spain. He wishes to return to the shores of the Mediterranean. All that he can have is Paris, a Paris which shuts door after door against him, a Paris which has no longer more to offer him than holes into which he may creep to drink, a Paris which is deaf, a famished, spasmodic Paris, flushed here, there pale, a city without eternity and with no myth. Each day brings sufferings with it for him, he has no longer either a court or a true friend. He falls into the blackest neurasthenia. He is haunted with the foreboding of death, which in the end will kill him. Unquote. For months before he died, he suffered from pains in the head. At the same time, he was lashing his moribund energies by the use of alcohol. Dupoirier relates that he used to write all night keeping his strength alive with brandy. In the end, the pains grew so intolerable that the doctors said that an operation would be necessary. But the operation threatened to be a very difficult one, for it was impossible to locate the exact spot where surgical treatment would benefit the patient. Only one of the great masters of surgery could be trusted, so the physician said, 
with such an operation. A huge fee was mentioned as the amount that would probably be demanded by such a master. Ah, well then, said Oscar, I suppose that I shall have to die beyond my means. He must have suffered terribly, says de Poirier, quote, for he kept raising his hands to his head to try and ease the torture. He cried out again and again. We used to put ice on his head. I was ever giving him injections of morphine. Unquote. Robert Ross was with him at the end. That he brought a Roman Catholic priest to the dying man has already been recorded with a recognition of the kindness of the act. There was another friend also in attendance, but fate would have it that neither of the two were there when Oscar Wilde breathed his last. This was at two o'clock on the afternoon of 30th of November, 1900. Dupoirier was holding him in his arms when he passed away. He had foreseen that he would not live to see the dawn of a new century. A journalist has recorded a remark that Oscar Wilde made in this connection. Quote, the last time I saw him, he writes, was about three months before he died. I took him to dinner at the Grand Café. He was then perfectly well and in the highest spirits. All through dinner he kept me delighted and amused. Only afterwards, just before I left him, he became rather depressed. He actually told me that he didn't think he was going to live long. He had a presentiment, he said. I tried to turn it off into a joke, but he was quite serious. Somehow, he said, I don't think I shall live to see the new century. Then a long pause. If another century began, and I was still alive, it would really be more than the English could stand. He was buried in Banyer Cemetery on 3rd December 1900, where he lies in the 17th grave of the 8th row of the 15th division. The inscription on his tomb is as follows. Oscar Wilde, October 16th, 1854, November 30th, 1900. Werbis meis adere nihil audibant et super illos stillabat eloquium meum. Job 29.22. R.I.P. The five years' lease of this grave was renewed in 1905 by Robert Ross, who hopes before that period has elapsed to be able to remove the ashes to a permanent resting place in one of the Parisian cemeteries when the friends and admirers of the poet will be able, if they wish to do so, to raise a monument over his grave. Deaths are apt to be tragic, is the comment which was made upon his passing by one who described his last hours. His death, coming when it did, avoidable as it was, wasteful as it was, was more cruel and more tragic than any passing of which literary history has record. If he had only taken care of himself, if someone had been by him to take care of him, time was preparing for him a splendid triumph. The harvest was near to the ripening. England had rejected him, sacrificing the artist to the mental patient. But other countries, indifferent to everything but the artist's work, were just about to open their arms. If he could have lived only three or four short years longer, 
he would have found in the plaudits of the whole continent some solace for all his terrible sufferings. In Germany he is today a world's poet, and we are not to dispute the literary taste of Germany. Oscar Wilde has been placed high in Germany's Valhalla. In Italy his success is no less startling. The Italians do not resent the comparison of him to the divine Alighieri. It may be very foolish, very wrong, but it simply is so. Nor have his sufferings, the miserable story of his life, created interest through pity, and set afoot a passing mode. A large number of Germans know nothing about the man Oscar Wilde, barely know his name, and yet are enthusiasts about his work. A friend of mine, travelling to Russia at the beginning of last year, fell into conversation in the train with a banker who was returning to Bromberg from an audience with the emperor. This gentleman told him that he had spent one evening at the theatre where he had seen Oscar Wilde's Salome, and he described the extraordinary impression it had produced on the audience. This seems to have been as great as that which was produced in the Paris Salon by the exhibition of the pictures forming Tissot's illustration of the life of Christ. Quote, I too, said the banker, though I am a hard-headed man of business, I felt like doing extraordinary things. I felt like springing up in my seat and shouting out and waving my arms. Such a mental convulsion I never felt within myself. Never thought I could feel in myself. Unquote. The friend then began to refer to Wilde's history and discovered that the banker did not even know the name of the author of Salome and had never heard a single word about his life. Amongst literary Germans, this ignorance does not, of course, prevail. There, thanks to the activity of the devoted Dr. Meyerfeld of Berlin, one of the foremost of German critics, Wilde's reputation is founded on a solid exposition of his literary achievements. Meyerfeld has rendered great services to his memory, not only by writing about the man and the artist, but by defending his memory against the literary harpies of his country, who have sought to snatch profit from the public interest. Every German scribbler has his contribution on Wilde to the periodicals, but Mayerfield is there to bludgeon the traffickers back into their dens. Yes, the death, occurring when it did, was indeed tragic. There are those who hold it as sad in reality as the realistic parable in which Zola describes, by means of the death of Gervaise, the certain destruction of those in whom the power of resistance has been destroyed by unjust circumstances. One might change one word in Zola's tragic page and write, Mais la vérité est à qu'il s'en allait des misères, des odieux et des fatigués de sa vie gâtée. Sa vie gâtée, that was it. These circumstances may afford satisfaction to the moralists and the unscientific, to those who have the cult of literature and that patriotism which desires to see England take a foremost place also in the intellect of the world, they can bring nothing but poignant regret. These cannot but deplore a loss, an unnecessary spendthrift wasteful loss, which deprives England of a genius who, as what we observe today on the continent incontestably establishes, 
could have restored having found himself our literature and our stage to the rank of supremacy from which for centuries past they have been degraded end of chapter 18